Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 17, Until We Have Faces. Uh, and we last time dealt with the um, uh, difficult and spicy confrontation between Ansit, Bardia's widow, <clears throat> and the queen. And uh, tonight we are moving on to... Uh, well, it's the beginning of the next stage of her uh, divine surgery, as she calls it. Um, the first stage was writing the book itself. Um, right, And she talked, she talked about her reflections and kind of what happened to her um, as she was writing the book and um, memory was uh, playing the dictator with her. And then um, we had these revelations that came through interactions with people, culminating with the death of Bardia and the confrontation with Unset, the uh, Anset, sorry, um, the uh, quite uncomfortable realizations that she was brought to about, well, about Bardia, yes, but about herself most of all, right? Um, but um, anyway, so the third stage of the surgery, right? The third stage of these uh, of this exploratory surgery that is being done on Orwal is in these visions and dreams that she begins to have, um, and we're going to get to those. I hope we're going to get to those this evening. But transitioning into that. We have this scene in the House of Ungat, this religious ceremony, um, annual religious ceremony in the House of Ungat that she is participating in. Um, yes, uh, Tarlonio, uh, you're right. Um, you're probably noticing that I, I, I accidentally said Unset instead of Anset, right? Because you're right, like Ungat and Anset are very... <laughs> Similar, right? Um, uh, they, uh, they they phonetically share a lot in common, um, and I don't think that's totally an accident. Um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, some of it would just be what you would expect um, in a language, but um, but I think they're a little close uh, to. Um, I think they're a little close, even just for an accident. Um, we'll come back to that in uh, uh, a little while, I think. Um, before I get uh, uh, going too fast, though, one announcement I did want to remind you all of, that Sunshine Moot is coming up. Our next regional moot is happening not this weekend, but next weekend down in Orlando, Florida. Um, uh, delightful annual moot, sunshine moot, really great time, wonderful people who come together for that one. Looking forward to seeing everybody down there again and participating in wonderful discussions on the theme of poetry and song. So um, gonna be, uh, gonna be, <laughs> will it rain this year? Oh man, yeah, Mighty Felix, I think I got wetter at sunshine moot than I've been like in my clothes in my adult life, <laughs> like outside of a pool or the, uh, we got, just absolutely drenched at Sunshine Mood a couple of years ago. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So um, it's, I, it will be fun. 
be fun to get down to sunshine mood. Um, but uh, anyway, so don't forget that you can always join us remotely um, if you uh, uh, if you can't make it down to Orlando uh, next weekend. Um, then uh, I I hope that uh, you will consider joining us uh, in hybrid fashion, which will get you access to all of the uh, to the recordings of the whole proceedings as well. So um, anyway, um, that is uh, so. so the delightful gathering that is Sunshine Moot is coming up very soon. Uh, and I know I am very much looking forward to that, and I invite you all to join us there. Uh, if you are interested, go to blackberry.signumuniversity.org, and you will find the in the events section the registration place for Sunshine Moot and all of our other upcoming moots. All right. Um, let, us, um, let, us, let us get back into the text here. First... Her reflections. So we got right up through the end of the conversation with Ansett, which really sort of ended with Orwell contemplating torturing Ansett to death. Right. Um, that moment when she quoted her father, you know, it is enough, right, said um, exactly what her father would have said in probably a very similar tone to how her father would have said it, um, and seriously contemplated uh, having answer tortured to death um, even though she realized that it would um, almost certainly <laughs> lose her the loyalty of Bardia's son uh, and all of that um, she doesn't do it right but um, but she is strongly tempted to do it now and now those divine surgeons had me tied down and were at work my anger protected me only for a short time anger wearies itself out and truth comes in for it was all true, truer than Ansett could know. I had rejoiced when there was oppressive work, all heaped up needless work, had heaped up needless work to keep him laid at the palace, plied him with questions for the mere pleasure of hearing his voice, anything to put off the moment when he would go and leave me to my emptiness. And I had hated him for going, punished him too. Men have a hundred ways of mocking a man who's thought to love his wife too well, and Bardia was defenseless. Everyone knew he'd married an undowered girl, and Ansett boasted that she'd, no, that she'd uh, no need, like most, to seek out the ugliest girls in the slave market for her household. I never mocked him myself, but I had endless slights and contrivances behind my veil for pushing the talk in such directions as I knew would make others mock him. I hated them for doing it, but I had a bittersweet pleasure at his clouded face. Did I hate him then? Indeed, I believe so. A love like that can grow to be nine-tenths hatred and still call itself love. One thing certain, in my mad midnight fantasies, Ansett dead or better still proved whore, witch or traitorous, when he was at last to be seeking my love, I always had him begin by imploring my forgiveness. Sometimes he had hard work to get it. I would bring him within an ace of killing himself first. Um, uh, Elros, I believe that undowered is in fact a word, uh, not a word used so very much, uh, in the 20th century, but, um, but yes, definitely, definitely a word. Um, uh, yes. Okay. Um, yes, JJ, I, you are absolutely right. So on the one hand, big, before we even get into the details of what she's saying here, the pattern of what she is doing should be mostly familiar to us. 
the kind of confession, the kind of honesty that we're seeing here. Her laying bare the really unsightly, I mean, the inner ugliness in her heart, right, is something we have seen her do consistently all the way through the book. Um, so none of that is, in a sense, um, uh, shocking, right, um, that she would do this kind of thing, that she would both um, come to this conclusion, for it was true, truer than Ansett could know, and that she would then go on to explain even the things which most, peop- most of us would cringe to recognize in ourselves. Because, like, I mean, you can see this, right? Even if any of us found ourselves in a situation like this, and many of us may have been in situations where we were attracted to or in love with someone that we could not have, right? And yet had contact with. Um, and perhaps we would confess that, though even that is something we often are not honest with about ourselves, right, to ourselves. Um, but even if we were honest about that, and even if we were honest about the fact that we were um, acting selfishly when we were acting towards that person in the way that she admits it, to then go on and be honest with herself and with us about the fact, about how her love was not only selfish love, but the way in which it turned out to, um, to, to almost to hatred, right? The pettiness of the actions that she's confessing. I mean, at least I know in myself, any actions of that kind, like the, the, what she describes about never mocking him herself, but using slights and contrivances for pushing the talk in such directions as would make others mock him, that is exactly the kind of thing that it is super easy to hide even from yourself, right? I mean, notice she goes on to say, I hated them for doing it, but I had bittersweet pleasure at his clouded face. Um, Because you can, you don't, usually you don't have to face the second half of that, the bittersweet pleasure, because you can hide behind the former. I hated them for doing it. Oh, yes, it always bothered me when people would make fun of Bardia. Such that, and you tell yourself that enough that you don't notice the other half and you don't even notice what you're doing, right? Um, anyway, like this is um, one thing that I think is a risk. Um, it's a risk of the way that Lewis has Orwell narrating this book is that she is so honest it's easy for us to be even harsher with her. Um, to be really, really harsh with her. To be completely disgusted by the things that she confesses. But I'm going to take a risk here and say, if we are really, really disgusted by how she acts, like if you feel an irrational repulsion to what Orwell confesses about herself. I wonder if it might be uh, the, the thing she's confessing might be hitting close to home. With you, I mean, 
Right. Because um, I'm pretty convinced that the kinds of things that she's describing here are things that we do. Maybe not in this case, maybe not of this kind. Um, Eric, it's exactly it. I do think that Orwell is the mirror for all of us. And I think that it is both why um, we get really uncomfortable with her, but also, as I was mentioning, we, we still cheer for her as well, right? Um, I think it's the really risky thing that Lewis has done. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, and Jocelyn, yes, I, what I believe we're seeing here is her reflections. This is her doing in accelerated form now what she did before, right? That is to say, when I say before, I mean when she was reflecting on writing her book, when she wrote her book and laid out everything that happened in the past and in the process of that remembered things that she did not remember, right? And realized the ways in which she'd been rewriting the past backwards. Um, And she was confronted with the reality of what she felt and what she said and even what she did, which she had kind of changed in her own head and in her own memory, um, kind of um, hiding from things, right? Um, But um, uh, anyway, um, the... So she she had that experience, right, where she realized upon writing it that the things that she had thought and said and done in years past were not what they really had been. She hadn't been honest with herself at the time, right? And so we see her now, I think, doing the same thing, but in much more accelerated fashion. Um, She is now, like, the day after, you know, she is so angry with Unsit that she wants to literally to torture her to death, right? Um, she is recognizing that Ansett was right, that it was all true, truer than Ansett could know. That Like, Ansett hadn't even done justice to it, right? Because notice what she does here is not just agreeing with Ansett. She's supplementing it, right? Ansett doesn't even realize how true... I mean, Ansett only thinks the queen was being, um, was using him up without thought for him, right? Um, she thought the queen was only callous, um, you know, not caring about Bardia, certainly not caring about Ansett, right? Um, and what she's confessing here is, it's like, no, actually, I was worse than that. It's not just that I worked him you know, really, like, unrelentingly. It's that I had heaped up needless work just to keep him laid at the palace. All those things that Ansett was complaining of, I didn't just do them, I contrived at them. Right? I did that on purpose. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, so as I say, the overall pattern is a pattern that we've seen before. But, J.J., I want to come back to... um, uh, Actually, hang on a second. Um, Eric was just saying... um, Sorry, you're responding. I'm just going back up the thread a little bit here. Um, SBJD was saying, I'm wondering if she feels the need... um, If she feels she needs a very honest self-assessment in order to have a stronger case against the gods. Um... 
she said that essentially, right? She was explaining when she like in those moments when she like caught herself being honest, like you could tell even like while she was narrating in the moment, right? In the moment of narration, not in the moment of reflecting on that narration afterwards, right? But in the moment of narration, when she was aware that she was oversharing, right? Remember there were those moments and she would say things like, um, you know, since I'm putting my charge against the gods, I'm not going to hold anything back. Remember, she, you know, there were a couple times where she kind of interjected that sort of idea. So it sort of started with that, right? Um, uh, but, um, uh, yeah, Eric is talking about her willingness to be honest and accurate and her ability to do so. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that those are, I think that even in, I believe that by the time we get to the end, we can see that even that, Eric, what you're pointing to about the capacity, like her capacity for this kind of honesty, she has already attributed the uh, detail and frankness of her account. She's already attributed that to the work of the gods. Um, that even the way she talks about her memory, she talks about it not as her doing something, but as something being done to her. Right. Um, her memories of the things that she was describing in book one, she describes at the beginning of book two as if they were things that happened to her. Um, that is the memories, not 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 the events, right? Um, but the memory of the events, the recalling of the events, that the the honesty, the detail, right? Um, she did go with that flow, right? Um, presumably, I think she probably could have stopped it if she'd wanted to. She could have refused to write it down or whatever. She didn't have to write the book, um, but. Um, uh, but I think that that's, there is something supernatural, divine, in the detail of the memory. These are all, she's being shown these things. Um, and there is, um, there is a continuity, I think, that we can see between, and she'll talk about this a little bit, between those moments when she is writing the book, including the first, you know, couple chapters of book two, when she, or most of them anyway, when she's writing about things that happened in her experience and her reflections on those things, right? Things that really happened and what she really thought at the time about those things and what she reflects later about those things. And when she starts describing visions and dreams that she has. Um, as I say, there's a, there's, there's a kind of continuity there. Um, and I think that that's a really important thing to notice because remember her, one of her main complaints from the beginning has been that the gods don't communicate clearly, right? And communicating in dreams and visions is one of the things she accuses them of, right? What use is that? 
if they won't speak clearly, but they'll only say cryptic things in dreams and visions and whatever. Right? That scarcely counts. It just makes it worse. Um, but um, uh, they... What she is coming to see and what we are coming to see already, even before we get to the dreams and visions, is that continuity. Um, a more radical thing. Remember, we were, we were teasing, kind of mocking Orwell earlier in the story when she kept saying, why won't the gods speak clearly? And we're like, dude, they've been speaking really clearly all the way along. You've just not wanted to listen. You've made the choice to not listen, right? Um, but now we can see even more deeply, right? Yes, the gods were speaking to her really, really clearly. They were speaking to her in her own voice. They were speaking to her through her narration of the story itself. So the very thing that we were saying, dude, you're so blind. Why can't you see this? She did. She was. Because she was narrating it. Right? Um, but she couldn't hear it. Didn't hear it any other way. Um, but, um, okay. Um, all right. So, but more. Here, I don't want to lose. Um, JJ made a really good point earlier on, which I don't want to leave. Um, I was saying that the overall pattern here is very similar um, to what we have seen her do before. But there's a difference. One f sort of fine distinction we've already seen that is, that she is already learning the lesson from the events, not just from writing about the events years later. Right. As I say, the process is kind of accelerating here. Um, that's one thing that we can notice that's different about it. But the other thing that we can notice is um, that realization, which is such a big deal for her. Did I hate him then? Indeed, I believe so. A love like that can grow to be nine-tenths hatred and still call itself love. Th how huge is that? Right? We've been noticing that for a long time, haven't we? Right? I mean, we were saying that. It was very clear. Like, her own narrative made that very, very clear back in the Psyche conversations, right? Um, that line between hatred and love, that blurring, the loving and the devouring, being one, right? Um, and... A love like that can grow to be nine-tenths hatred and still call itself love. Oh, man. Yeah, I agree with Leif and Feonaro. This is um, uh, a really painfully true statement, isn't it? I mean, talk about... It's not just that this, this book holds a, a mirror up to us, right? Prompts us to, like look at our own lives and our own loves and our own actions towards people in uncomfortable ways. But it does so in, like, areas we don't ever want to look at, right? Um, it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's 
this is a tough book. It's a tough book. Um, yeah. Um, Jack Rabbit, I agree. It is interesting that for Orwell, <clears throat> anger is a defense against the truth. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I also wonder how much more often it's true. That's true than we realize. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but again, JJ's point was it's not only that she is coming to these painful self-realizations sooner. It's also that she has come now further than we've ever seen her come. To realize, I mean, in years, she never, I don't think she has still to this point in the book said or acknowledged that her love of psyche had become nine-tenths hatred. Um, and um, yeah. Um, so this is a really important realization. It's still not a hundred percent there. Um, that is she, I, it's not obvious that she's yet fully applying this back to Psyche, but it might be, well, I was going to say it might be unstated. It might be implicit, but Orwell doesn't usually leave stuff unstated, right? Um, but um, um, anyway, yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about it, Lisa Starling. I like that a lot. She's testing out the idea, right? This is her venturing on exploring this frontier between hate and love because she has never even, even at, at her really honest was not completely willing, right. To go here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. I, um, yeah, Sharon, I'm very sympathetic to that observation. Um, there are ways that Lewis is cutting through to motivations of the heart that are so feminine that I think we are seeing the influence of his wife on in this book. Yes. I'm never comfortable talking about that for a couple reasons. One, because I don't, there's a whole passel of assumptions I don't want to make. And also it's like, I don't even want to, <sighs> Well, I'm a lot more comfortable letting women make those observations than making them myself because I am, like, by definition, not super qualified to make them. Um, and it is really speculative, but um, the one thing I feel very confident in saying is this. Okay, well, one thing that is perfectly clear is this. Um, Lewis's handling of the feminine perspective, the woman's perspective in this book is just so totally different from his other books, his pre Joy Davidman books that, I mean, it's just, it is, there is a, there are demonstrable differences, however they are explained, whatever direction you think they go, they are not the same. Right. So that's one thing that I think is very, very clear. 
Um, the second thing, again, that that's a fuzzy observation, but I, I, I don't think it would be hard to defend um, if I were pushed. The, um, the other thing that I would say is just that it strikes me as it strikes me as a book it's hard to imagine Lewis even trying to write much less succeeding in the way that he's doing um, if he were still the lifelong bachelor that he had been you know a few years before um but um yeah i again as for like how involved joy davidman is in this like how you know active i i i don't know i don't know enough about that to have a strong opinion on that i it's a kind of speculation that i don't find really fruitful but standing back and saying um you know holding a book like that hideous strength in one hand until we have faces in the other hand and just saying, wow, <laughs> that I am willing to do. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, right. Okay. Anyway, um, Okay, I just want to make sure I think I'm... Oh, I saw someone asking before about... Um, I just want to make sure that this is clear. What Barty is being teased about, right? Um, because it might not be intuitive, but it's another way in which Lewis seems to me to be very convincingly inhabiting this ancient culture that he's asked us to imagine. Right. Um, men have a hundred ways of mocking a man who's thought to love his wife too well. What does that mean? Right. Um, that's, um, it's a much less common thing to make fun of someone for in today's world than it used to be. Um, uh, you know, the, the modern ideal is equal partnership, Right. I mean, I mean, if there's a husband and wife married, you know, the, the modern ideal is equal partnership between them. Um, that is a modern thing. Right. Um, and um, I it's in a society which is much more um, unashamedly. Um, yeah, we do still have terms to describe it, right? Like whipped is the would be the modern term for this. But again, that's it's not a particularly. Ma I mean, I'm not saying that no one ever criticizes or makes fun of anybody for this sort of thing. It's just not. It's just not a dominant mode anymore, because of course it is primarily about male, it's based upon the presumption of male dominance, right? In a society in which the men are obviously the leaders and the women are obviously supposed to be subordinate, um, a man who to any extent chooses to subordinate himself to his wife is ridiculous, 
Right. I mean, that's that's the um, um, that is a significant reality in these uh, in these older cultures, which were. I think it's hard for us. It's not hard for us to. I mean, it's not hard for us to imagine a male-dominated society, but I think it's increasingly harder. I think this is fair to say. Hear me out. I think it's increasingly harder for us to imagine, to really imagine ourselves in a society which is not even a tiny bit ashamed of being male-dominated, which has like no self-consciousness about that at all, and believes it is simply the obvious and right way to be. Um, and um, anyway, so... The idea of Bardia acted counterculturally in marrying an undowered girl. If you marry her for her own sake, for the sake of herself and her beauty, if it's a love match instead of a business transaction, like if the love match supersedes business transaction, you're a sap, right? You're a fool. You've shown yourself to be a fool and probably a weak fool. That's the fact of the matter, right? And what's more, it was not just a passing thing. He has remained in that same attitude towards his wife, right? That's the reference to uh, Ansett's boast. Ansett, his wife, bragged that she did not need to seek out the ugliest girls in the slave market for her household. Why? Because she trusted that her husband was not going to have sex with the slaves. He wouldn't be tempted. So it doesn't matter how attractive their slaves are. Because she knows her husband is not going to be tempted to unfaithfulness with the slaves. And that is also countercultural. It's presented as countercultural. Like it's normal for a wife, like most, to, um, you know... sort of secure their own position by making sure, you know, there's no competition there. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes. Um, anyway. Um, yes. Fanaro, that's why Orwell fantasizes about Ansett being proved a whore. Um, it would be nice if Ansett just died, and then Bardia came to Orwell and was like, I have no wife now, and I now realize that, like, I love you and want to marry you now, right? But she's like, but, but better than that would have been if she had been proven a whore, witch, or traitorous, and so, and he was like, ah, I, it turns out my love was false all along. I have always been wrong to love Ansett and should have loved you instead all along. Right. Um, that's, um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, uh, that was, that was the premise, the premise of her fantasies there. Um, Okay, anyway, I just wanted to be explicit about 
make sure we're on the same page about what he's talking about there and why, what the subject of mockery was. And I agree with um, uh, Maureen. You said that Lewis makes us love Bardia more for this. Yes, it's very clever how he arranges this, right? Um, in telling us, like, Bardia's secret shame, <laughs> right? The secret shame that Bardia has is, like, getting mocked for by all the other guys, right? The way in which Bardia is countercultural is in a way that is admirable from our perspective, but is not admirable within the context of, of their society there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, keep going. But the result, when all those bitter hours were over, was a strange one. The craving for Bardia was ended. No one will believe this who has not lived long and looked hard, so that he knows how suddenly a passion which has for years been wrapped round the whole heart will dry up and wither. Perhaps in the soul, as in the soil, those growths that show the brightest colors and put forth the most overpowering smell have not always the deepest root. Or perhaps it's age that does it. But most of all, I think, it was this. My love for Bardia, not Bardia himself, had become to me a sickening thing. I had been dragged up and out onto such heights and precipices of truth that I came into an air where it could not live. It stank, a gnawing greed for one to whom I, would, I could give nothing, of whom I craved all. Heaven knows how we had tormented him, Anset and I. For it needs no Oedipus to guess that many and many a night her jealousy of me had welcomed him home late from the palace to a bitter hearth. But when the craving went, nearly all that I called myself, nearly all that I called myself, went with it. It was as if my whole soul had been one tooth, and now that tooth was drawn. I was a gap, and now I thought I had come to the very bottom, and that the gods could tell me no worse. <laughs> Oh, man, what a horribly ominous sentence that is, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Um, um, yes. Jocelyn, that's a really interesting connection. Um, the realization is reminiscent of Scarlet's about Ashley Wilkes. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, you're right. Um, there have been others who have treated with a similar kind of thing. When you're... When you have this one obsession, right, and you've, um, uh, how she talks about it, a, a passion which has for years been wrapped around the whole heart. I love that metaphor there, right? It's not that your whole heart is focused on this, like that passion has been smothering your heart, right? Has been holding your own heart in this kind of bondage. Um, and that's what she's talking. And so, so yes, I do think that there, there, um, that's a, I, I think that from Gone with the Wind is a really good illustration of a, a similar kind of, um, dynamic. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, but, um, she, yeah, Eric, I'm inclined to remember the mercenary armies. Um, the fox, I think, would have things to say about this, right? Um, this is a, a... It is perhaps well to stop for a moment and remember that the fox was right about so many things, right? Fox is not wrong about the passions. 
um, and what the passions can do to the spirit, right? Um, yeah. By the way, one other small thing, because I don't want to harp on this, but one other small thing. Notice how she comes around to recognizing that actually Ansett probably made Bardia's life a living nightmare, her own self, right? But notice the flavor of that. Think how easy it would be, how easy it might have been for Orwal to defend herself with that thought earlier on, right? Oh, well, she thinks, I tormented him. I can only imagine what she did to him, right? And the thing is, that would have been easy to do because she wouldn't have been wrong. She's probably right about that about the bitter hearth to which he was often welcomed home, right? She, her insight about that, I think, is probably correct. It needs no Oedipus uh, to determine that. Um, but notice how far she is from doing that. She doesn't use that insight for any, for an iota of self-justification. She doesn't use that even a little bit to deflect from her own um, from the, um, the, the rot, the greed, um, the sickening nature of her love for Bardia, which I'm inclined to put in air quotes, right? That love, which she herself had realized had become nine tenths hatred, right? Um, yes, Dvorah, you're totally right in saying that. Instead of deflecting blame from herself to her rival, what she's doing is exactly as Devorah says in that moment, she is finally thinking about the loved one, Bardia, and how he felt. She's thinking about him instead of about herself, finally, right? And she is realizing um, that heaven knows how we had tormented him, right? Is that a very, very brief, she doesn't dwell on it, right? But it's, a, it's an acknowledgement of the mind shudders back from thinking about his, his sufferings in the middle of this, right? Um, yes. And she, um, she, as she, as her craving for Bardia, and that's a fascinating word, isn't it? She doesn't even call it love exactly anymore, right? She starts the paragraph off by calling it a craving for Bardia. Um, it's a kind of desire, but it's not really love. Um, and you see even um, when she talks about uh, my love for Bardia, not Bardia himself, had become to me a sickening thing. And, Devorah, exactly as you point out, one of the consequences of her becoming sickened at the reflections on her own love for Bardia is the ability to contemplate Bardia now and appreciate him, right? Um, to see things from his perspective and think about him instead of herself. Um, and yes, heaven knows is a uh, not an empty expression in this book, right? Um, yeah, the, the gods probably do know, in fact, right? Just as she herself is being given a glimpse of that through this ongoing communication that's been happening, as we see. Um, 
Yeah, Eric, she is finally sickened at the things in herself that sickened us as readers in different places. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, uh, two last things here. Um, one, I don't want to miss the force of the, um, the shallow root metaphor that she makes there. Not the tooth thing. She switches from talking about the roots of a plant to talking about a tooth being drawn, which is kind of like uh, shifting from one root metaphor to another, right? Um, but, um, uh, but I'm talking about the first one. Um, notice how she describes the death of that. How did it come to die? How did her love for Bardia come to shrivel and die? I had been dragged up and out onto such heights and precipices of truth that I came into an air where it could not live. The consequence for her, the effect of um, the effect of the this ongoing and increasing self-realization that she's been doing. Um, she is being like the truth about herself is being made so plain to her that it's not possible for like her. Um, it's not her like sort of patterns of denial. It's not her self-deception that's dying. It's the craving itself. She can't keep it up. She can't keep it up because as she keeps it up, she sees through to what it is what it really is. Remember, she was just realizing that her love was nine-tenths hatred. Um, and seeing that, she can't hold on to it. She can't pine after him anymore once she sees that her pining is not a beautiful love. It's not... doesn't make her a romantic and pitiable figure. It is a gnawing greed for one to whom I could give nothing of whom I craved all. The selfishness, even narcissism, as we were talking about with her before, right? She sees it. She's, and when she sees it, it can't... The seeing it shrivels it. It can't live. She's not exactly repenting. She is repenting of it, right? But I think that that's an interesting thing here. We saw before, I mean, back in the psyche conversations and stuff, remember the emphasis that was being placed repeatedly on Orwell's own choice, right? She's being shown all the things. She does, in fact, have all the data that she needs to make the decision, but she does not want to. She continues actively to convince herself of the contrary, or at least that it's impossible to know, right? But we see her make the choice. Here, she does not talk as if she is making a choice. She is not here conscious of making a decision to turn away from her selfish, narcissistic love for Bardia, right? Um, she... Um, she doesn't we don't see her coming to a moment where she chooses which way to go 
what she describes is what she's seen, what she's what she's learned, right? What has been exposed to her. And when that happens, right? She uses the passive voice. I had been dragged up and out onto such heights and precipices of truth that I came into an air where it could not live. Um, but how did that happen? How was she dragged up and out onto these heights and precipices of truth? By her own book. By her own writing. By her own memories. By her own anger against the gods. By her very accusation against the gods. In fact. Right? Um, J.J., it reminds me enormously of Lewis's description of his own conversion to Christianity. Um, if you've read Surprised by Joy, which is Lewis's spiritual autobiography, um, when he describes the moment where he decided to be a Christian, he talks of feeling at the time like there wasn't actually a choice that he was making. And he has a, a sort of a contemplation, a brief contemplation there uh, of uh, about sort of the nature of, um, you know, free will, essentially. Um, but um, anyway, yes, JJ, I was very much thinking of that too. And I think it's amazing, honestly, amazing to me. Um, you can read that in Surprised by Joy and, you know, it's possible you've had some experience that might be like that and you might kind of resonate with how he describes it. But if you haven't, I don't think you will. Um, I mean, I just, he doesn't describe it in such a way that I can see it resonating with someone who hasn't had a similar kind of experience. I don't mean a similar kind of religious conversion. I mean, any kind of experience like that, um, uh, religious or otherwise. Um, but here, I think in this book, he has done that. He has um, described what I agree with you, JJ, is a very similar kind of situation. And yet he's done it in a way that because I, I, I myself, I mean, I never had exactly a kind of experience. There are several experiences that Lewis describes in Surprised by Joy that are really not like anything I've ever personally experienced. I'm like interested to read about it, but it's just, you know, I definitely don't hear myself, don't resonate with it myself, much of it. Um, and, um, but, but I get this, <laughs> like I hear, um, Orwell takes me along with her in a very different kind of way. Um, but, um, Anyway, um, okay. The last thing, the tooth. It was as if, this is such a funny simile. It was as if my whole soul had been one tooth, and now that tooth was drawn. It would be one thing. This would be an easy to understand simile. I mean, I, anyone who has either a long enough memory to remember this in childhood or has had this experience as an adult 
losing a tooth, I mean, having a gap in your teeth. Um, it's a very evocative simile, because if you've had that experience, you know, um, <laughs> you, you were almost never as um, uh, aware of an absence <laughs> as you w will be aware of the gap where the tooth used to be in your mouth, right? I mean, it's just like you're constantly reminded of it. You're, it's so distracting. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, you're so, it's so distracting. Um, and um, yeah. Anyway, um, that itself would be a really interesting metaphor or simile, right? For this experience she's describing, like she's describing there was this thing her love for Bardia, which had been a major element of her entire adult life, right? This has been something which has been like a cornerstone of her world for decades, right? And now it's gone. It's just gone. Um, it's not just that he's gone. She's not talking about grief. She's not talking about bereavement. She's talking about her love shriveling up and dying, die, drying up and withering, in her words, right? Um... And to compare that to a tooth having been drawn so that you're constantly aware of the gap, right, would be really, um, really evocative, right? Um, but she goes a step further than that. It's not just that she has a gap in her teeth. It's not just that a tooth has been drawn. She says, it was as if my whole soul had been one tooth. And now the tooth was drawn. I was a gap. Her whole being, she felt, is now that continuously, distractingly present awareness of an absence, of a thing missing that should be there. Right? <laughs> Jack Rabbit says the, this whole book has been her wiggling that tooth. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, but um, yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Maybe it's oral surgery <laughs> she's getting. <laughs> but anyway. Um, um, she it's more than the simile is more than just saying she's now completely toothless. Like it's, it's not the same thing to say all of her teeth has been drawn and now she has no teeth compared with saying her whole soul had been one tooth and now her whole soul is all that's left of her is a gap, a gap between teeth is different from toothlessness, right? I'm not saying worse or better. I'm just saying different. It's not the same experience. And the simile specifically invokes the sense of the gap, the sense of a, a, a hole where something should be, um, where you expect to find something. Um, <laughs> yes, Arthur. Um, it is in, it is certainly oral wall surgery. So I suppose, uh, yeah, 
I suppose. I um, honestly did not even think of that pun when I said it, Arthur. <laughs> um, yes, exactly. Um, okay. Um, anyway, so just back to that. The reason I want to hold on to that simile there for a minute. I think it's important to realize she is not saying I lost something. She's not just saying I lost something and I don't have it anymore. I was realizing that something is missing from my life. She's not saying those things. She is saying um, nearly all that I called myself went with that craving. Her entire construction of herself Remember, we saw her constructing herself. Remember that? When she was imprisoning Orwal within her womb, and it was she was unpregnant with Orwal, which was shriveling and dying, and only the queen remained. When she put on her veil, right? When she put on her veil permanently and began to construct this new identity of queen, which was different from Orwal, right? Now, <laughs> you guys are too much. Um, sorry, they're doing puns now in the chat room. Um, um, <laughs> so, the um, yeah, um, Man, you guys totally made me lose my totally made me lose my train of thought with that. Um, her con construction. There we go. That's where I was. The queen, I think, is the tooth that's gone. All that I called myself. That's what she's been calling herself. Is the queen, right? Because, wait, does that mean that her whole identity as queen was wrapped up in her twisted love for Bardia? No, not exactly. It doesn't have to mean that in order for this to be true, what she's saying. Um, what it means is that, think about how what Ansett was saying related not only to her relationship with Bardia, but to her identity as queen, to what she was as queen, how she had defined herself as different from her father, right? How she had defined herself as, um, the, remember when she, when Orwal was stirring in her womb and when she would hear the sound of the chains, what would she do? Go to the pillar room, go to the pillar room and work, 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 work. Right, she would go and queen it for a while and torture herself with queening, just as she tortured Bardia with her queening as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, well, 
we'll see more of this as we go. But I just wanted that's I do think that when she talks about this, uh, the thing that's been pulled out and which which makes her entire being a gap in the teeth. It's the queen that she's lost. And I think we'll see more evidence of this as we move forward. Um, okay. Now, to the house of Unsit, or to the Unsit, I did it again, of Ungit at last. A few days after I had been with Ansit came the rite of the year's birth. This is when the priest is shut up in the house of Ungit from sunset, and on the following noon fights his way out and is said to be born. But of course, like all these sacred matters, it is and it is not, so that it was easy for the fox to show its manifold contradictions. For the fight is with wooden swords, and instead of blood, wine is poured over the combatants, and though they say he is shut into the house, it's only the great door to the city and the west that is shut, and the two smaller doors at the other end are open and common worshippers go in and out at will. When there is a king in Gloam, he has to go in with the priest at sunset and remain in the house till the birth, but it is unlawful for a virgin to be present at the things which are done in the house that night. And she's a virgin, right? So I go in by the north door only an hour before the birth. The others who have to be there are one of the nobles and one of the elders and one of the people, chosen in a sacred manner which I am not allowed to write. That year it was a fresh morning, very sweet, and a light wind from the south. And because of that freshness out of doors, I felt it more than ever a horrible thing to go into the dark holiness of Ungit's house. I have, I think, said before that Arnhem had made it a little lighter and cleaner. But it was still an imprisoning, smothering sort of place, and especially on the morning of the birth, when there had been sensing and slaughtering and pouring of wine and pouring of blood and dancing and feasting and towsing of girls and burning of fat all night long. There was as much taint of sweat and foul air as, in a mortal's house, would have set the laziest slut to opening windows, scouring and sweeping. Important footnote. Um, in From the 19th century earlier, the word slut does not have sexual implications. The word slut means a very lazy housekeeper. Um, just want to make sure that piece of vocabulary is clear. Um, that's why it's connected with the word lazy, right? That is that is the common adjective that is uh, connected um, with that noun. Um, yes, Devorah, I uh, had the same reaction. Um, Eric, I'm not sure if the word slut is etymologically related to the word sloth, but I would I would guess it is. That's a really good question. I don't know. Somebody look up the word slut in the OED. Um, I bet it... It's very... It seems so plausible that I have a hard time believing it isn't true. Um, but, um... Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yes. Um... Anyway, okay. Sorry, but going back to Devorah's point... Devorah says it's kind of amazing to me that she complies with the prohibition about writing about the sacred rituals, given how her attitude has been so belligerent of the gods and their ways. Um, uh, <laughs> Look, so Eric, saying that slut is from the Middle English slut 
is just as much as to say it's an old word. <laughs> um, probably from Old English, sluta? Really? You think? Ah. Uh, okay. I don't see what it has to do with sleet or hail. Um, <laughs> I, so I admit that I am sometimes skeptical of dictionary entries and things that um, use the word probably. Um, <laughs> that is, <laughs> I, I always add in my own head, but possibly not, <laughs> right? So I, I don't know. That one doesn't feel like it has a massive quantity of authority in my head, but it's very possible that slut and sloth are not in fact, um, are not in fact connected. Um, but um, <laughs> yes, exactly. A, a <laughs> curious chance says, AKA any Proto-Indo-European word. Yeah, exactly. Like, not, 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 not fully, I know. I'm not just being like cynical about philology. I'm just saying. Um, um, yes, slut does have more to do with slovenliness than laziness, Emily, but it's connected with slovenliness because it is specifically an accusation that is made against someone whose job it is to make sure things aren't slovenly, right? If it is part of your duties to keep things tidy and you don't, that is what, that's what a slut is that's what the that is that is the direction in which the accusation of slut the label of slut would 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 be labeled and yes since the keeping the house and keeping the house clean and tidy was the woman's job then it came to be an ex, you know it was it's functionally used as an exclusively um feminine uh uh insult um which i assume is how it came um in the 20th century to be a sexual insult because Almost all insults against women seem to gravitate toward sexuality, which I think tells you more about men than women, but in any case. Um, um, but, um, anyhow, um, uh, I'm trying to think if I can remember any occasions of a man being called a slut, but I can't think of any. Um, anyway, yeah. Um, okay, right. <laughs> um, never mind. Okay, anyway, sorry. I don't want to get off on a whole side trail. I just wanted to make sure, because I, I, that word I know can be kind of alarming in a modern context, especially and perhaps confusing under the circumstances, um, uh, because in this paragraph she's also literally talking about prostitution. Right. So like there has like, when she talks about the towsing of girls to to uh, to do a gloss on another piece of rather obscure uh, English vocabulary, towsing means to have sex with. Um, uh, so she's talking about men having sex with the temple prostitutes, um, Ungut's girls in the night. Um, so um, that's that's what she is referring to. Um and it is one of the many things which has contributed to the taint of sweat and foul air in the house, in the house of Ungit on this day. Um, uh, okay. Anyway. Um, Devora coming back, Devora coming back to your observation about, um, Orwell's unexpected compliance. 
uh, with the prohibitions. On the one hand, one is tempted to say, as we have seen a shift and a tempering of how she talks about the gods already from the beginning of book two, right? I am tempted to say perhaps it is evidence of her own attitude changing. But the rest of this whole passage does not seem consistent with that, right? She is speaking, throughout, especially in that last paragraph, with open skepticism about this sacred ritual, right? Um, and I really like... Um, uh, I really like the um, oh yeah I sorry I, I, I'm forgetting which one of you mentioned this um, but the way she she invokes the fox right recalling how easy it was for the fox to argue against the sacred matters of Ungit. Um, because the sacred matters are both is, both are and are not, you know, various things, right? Um, it is a rite which enacts a sacred ritual. What she talks about is that the ritual itself is point, is supposed to be pointing to a truth, right? But she talks about the overt fakery of it, right? Um, in other words, what she's talking about there is like multiple levels of distance. Assuming there's some spiritual reality behind this, right? What exactly is the right of the year's birth pointing to? It seems like creation. Um, you know, the uh, the birth of life, the beginning of life and the, um, the beginning of, of fertility, right? Um, if that's the truth, if like creation vaguely, right, is the truth that the year, the right of the year's birth is pointing to, it would be pointing to that. Um, it would still be, it would not be that, even if they were fighting with real swords and shedding actual... Even if the priest had to actually fight his way out and kill people, right? If it was a real combat instead of a fake combat, um, it would still... And if the house were... If, he were act, if the priest were actually imprisoned and he had to actually fight his way out and actually kill people in order to do it, um, it still wouldn't be the thing. It would still only be a symbol of the thing. And she's pointing to how it's not even that, right? It's like a symbol of the symbol because he's not really fighting and he's not really imprisoned, right? Um, yeah. Um, and yes, Curious Chance, you were right that when the fox was pointing out the contradictions, when the fox was basically unwilling to... Unwilling to, uh, how do I want? I want I'm trying to say this carefully. Um, Fox would doubtless rip me to shreds, no matter how I say it. But um, 
he would be resistant to investing in symbolic language or in symbolic ritual. Um, it would be easy for him to point to the things that she is observing, the wooden swords, the blood instead of wine, the, like, pretending to be shut up in a house where the doors are standing open all day, right? Um, the other doors, right, are standing open all day while the one ritual door is closed. Um, uh, yes, Curious Chance, exactly. He was unwilling to sit with mystery. Um, he insisted that everything be spelled out and that when it was all spelled out, it was all clear and consistent, right? Um, and Orwell felt, even young Orwell felt, that, um, that that was a weak position and he could never win an argument against the priest of Ungit. Um, but um, anyway, um, as far as her compliance... I'm not really sure, Devorah, what it represents. And it's chosen in a sacred manner which I am not allowed to write. Um, I have one theory, Devorah. And my theory is, given the overall tone of this section, again, in this section, she's making fun of this. She's mocking it. I mean, she's back to describing the... Um, the holiness of the House of Ungit, which mercifully, in her opinion, is slightly less holy than it used to be, right? Less dark and um, less smothering than it once was. But still, right? The way that she describes um, the rituals that are being performed, all the things that she talks about, sensing, meaning the waving of incense around, right? The waving of incense, the slaying of sacrificial animals, the pouring out of wine, the pouring out of blood in sacrifice, the dancing, and the towsing of girls, right? The having sex with the temple prostitutes in the house of the fertility goddess, and the burning of fat. All of these things are sacred rituals, part of sacred rituals, very common parts of sacred rituals across many ancient cultures. Um, and she, even the words that she chooses, words like slaughtering and towsing, right, um, are slighting. And her response to all of this, rather than think about those rituals and what those rituals might mean or point to or anything like that, right, all she's talking about is like the stink, right? There was such a taint of sweat and foul air um, as in a mortal's house would have set the laziest slut to opening windows, scouring and sweeping, right? Uh, it was horrible in there. Um, it's hard. Her tone is hard for me to characterize, Devorah. I don't disagree with you. Devorah is saying that I don't read her... I don't read this as her mocking it directly. Um, rather, she's remembering the way that the fox mocked it. I think that's true in the first paragraph. I think the third paragraph is her. 
Um, but I agree with you. Her tone is different than it would have been in chapter five of the book. Um, And I'll, I'm trying to figure out how to put my finger on it. And by the way, I hope you all are prepared to be patient. Um, this is not the last time I'm going to struggle with trying to figure out how to put into words what I think Lewis is getting at in, in the last chapters of this book. Um, but... Um, um, Yeah. Um, remember, this comes after she has already had these recognitions of what the gods are doing. She is already speaking in a revised tone. So, so Devorah, if this is the way in which I absolutely agree that her tone is not merely as cynical and I don't know what, just like rejecting of Ungit and everything about Ungit and the gods as it would have been before. But I think that there is um, uh, I think that there is still an important distance. She's describing a distance, Right? She met the god of the mountain on the mountain. She saw him face to face, and he spoke to her in words that she will never forget. She has since come to understand that the gods have been working on her and changing her and speaking to her through her own book and her own memories. Then she goes and sits in the house of Unget, which reeks and which is full of all of this nonsense. She's still, she, what she's not getting here, and I think this is really important because there is a sense in which that's what this part is all about. What she's not getting is, what, I think she still sees a significant gap, right? Um, before she would have complained about the holiness of the house of Unget as an, ex, like, she talked about those things because she hated Ungit and was angry at Ungit, right? And was rejecting the gods. And so she was talking about those things as, um, if this makes sense, almost an excuse to, like, reject them, to say bad things about them, to be angry, like an excuse to be angry. Like, here is a scandal I can point to that proves that the gods are a disgrace, right? Here, I think instead, we don't have that same, that quite that same tone anymore. But I think she's still resistant. And I think what causes the resistance is she's looking at, she's like, okay, so maybe, so A, the gods exist. I know this. B, I've heard, you know, I, the gods are doing stuff. And I'm not enjoying it, but um, I, 
it's surgery, right? Um, I'm not enjoying the surgery, but they're surgeons and presumably trying to make me better. Even pulling a tooth is a merciful surgery, right? Um, but I think she she's there, right? And then she goes to the House of Ungit and is saying, essentially, I still don't get it. I, I This, this, I don't get. This house, this rock, this sacrifices, the prostitutes, the, how is this holy? What does this have to do with the gods, right? Before she was like, look at how horrible the gods are. I mean, it's a scandal, right? Now she's like, Actually, it's still kind of a scandal. Um, not because I'm looking for a stick to beat the gods with, but because I've met the gods and I've been hearing from the gods, and this doesn't seem to do them justice. Right? Do you see? What, do you see? What, do you see the distinction there? So I think she's still being not bitter in the same way, but skeptical. Skeptical not of the gods, but of the rituals. Like, what is? What? Why do we do this? What does anyone get out of this? What's the point? What's the point of all this nonsense? And not just nonsense, but there's blood. There's, there's occasionally human sacrifices. I know one was my sister, right? And the prostitution. Um, yeah. So she's looking around and she's like, this, I still don't get. This, st I'm, I, this still makes no sense to me. Right. One last thing before we um, one last thing before we leave this, the virginity thing. It's still an issue. Right. Um, every year, the House of Ungit casts her virginity in her face, as she accused Psyche of doing. Right. Um, she is a kind of outsider here because she's it's unlawful for a virgin to be present at the things that are done in the house that night. She is not allowed to see. She doesn't understand the ritual, but she is distanced from it. Um, and I think that that's important. Um, Orwell's virginity is not the most comfortable of running motifs in this book to talk about, but it's definitely important. It definitely is a running motif in this story. And I think, and at, in several, um, at several places, right? Yes, Corey, I agree with you. Um, it does make you wonder how they hashed out the compromise, right? Because clearly when she became queen, they were in a pickle. Because on the one hand, um, the king has, the, the ruler of Gloom has an important role to play in the sacred ritual, but you can't be a virgin, right? And here she is, the virgin queen for the first time ever. It's not a thing before. There's, there's no procedures for this. So yeah, they clearly had to figure something out, right? But even that, Corey, right, I think is possibly a, um, uh, uh, an element here. She presumably would have been part of that compromise, right? And if her role in the ritual is like a, you know, a wumped up thing that she helped to wump, 
<laughs> right? I mean, if she was part of the planning team who figured out how to navigate that particular thing, that's going to make the ritual seem even another step more unreal to her because it's something that was made up. She knows she was part of the ones who were making it up, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Katron, I would not be in the least bit surprised if they made a distinction between a virginal king and a virginal queen. Um, yeah, I, I, I probably shouldn't speculate, but yes, you're probably right. Okay, my one speculation is that they would probably think that the virginal king problem is an easily solved problem, whereas the virginal queen problem is not. I mean, there are a bunch of prostitutes right there, after all, right? Um, uh, if that were a problem, there's. I, I think there are easier solutions. They would have thought that the solutions might have been a bit easier uh, for a king, a virginal king, than a virginal queen, is my guess. But anyway. Um, but, um, yeah, anyhow. Um, Okay. Uh, that, let's 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 keep going. Let's keep going. <laughs> Leaf, I love it. I think Leaf is going to keep inserting T. S. Eliot quotes in the chat <laughs> until I relent and talk about T. S. Eliot. <laughs> I, I hear you, man. I hear you. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. I came and sat on the flat stone, which is my place opposite the sacred stone, which is Ungit herself. The new woman-shaped image a little on my left. Arnim's seat was on my right. He was in his mask, of course, nodding with weariness. They were beating the drums, but not loud, and otherwise there was silence. I saw the terrible girls sitting in rows down both sides of the house, each cross-legged at the door of her cell. Thus they sat, year after year, and usually barren after a few seasons, till they turned into the toothless crones who were hobbling about the floor, tending fires and sweeping, sometimes after a swift glance round, stooping as suddenly as a bird to pick up a coin or a half-gnawed bone and hide it in their gowns. And I thought how the seed of men that might have gone to make hardy boys and fruitful girls was drained into that house and nothing given back, and how the silver that men had earned hard and needed was also drained in there and nothing given back, and how the girls themselves were devoured and were given nothing back. This is the passage I was talking... Remember when I was making uh, distasteful references to semen earlier on in our discussions? This is the scene I was thinking of where it becomes relevant. The... Um, thought that Orwell has about how the seed of men um, is drained into that house and nothing given back. Um, again, we see her focus on the scandal of this, right? Now, Curious Chance, I hear you. Curious Chance, there's nothing given back. What about the rain and the corn? Right? What about the rain and the corn? Um, oh, that is such a beautiful observation, Jack Rabbit. Give me a minute. We'll come back to that. Um, so, Devorah, I come back to your earlier observation. What do we see about Orwell's own attitude towards the gods? Like, any change in her attitude towards the gods in this? 
I know that wasn't exactly your question, but that's where I took your question. That's the direction I took it, right? Um, and um, yes, Morgul Hamster, the Greek view does deny the gods credit for the rain and the corn in the sense that there's a direct causal link between sacrifices and the rain. Um, Fox, the Fox would say that it's all due to the course of nature, which is, of course, a reflection of the divine being. Um, uh, but it's not like you don't bribe the rain into raining by killing a bull or worse by killing a human or your daughter, as it might be. Right. Um, that the fox considers a horrible, scandalous, blasphemous idea. Not that the gods cause rain in some sense, but that they can be bought in this way. Um, and um, uh, so, yes, we see again what sounds clearly skeptical. Because, Curious Chance, you're certainly right that um, her repetition of nothing given back and then that reversal at the end were given nothing back. The temple prostitutes themselves are the worst example of this. Right? And notice again how the seed of men. Right? The temple prostitutes have been the means of draining the seed of men into that house and nothing given back. Um, sexual acts that are happening with no fruitfulness, with no possibility of fruitfulness. Um, you know, no child of the family can result, is allowed to result. Um, the seed of men has gone into the house and the temple prostitutes are the means for that. They are the mechanism of that. But then it turns at the end of the sentence to show how the temple prostitutes themselves are the worst example. How they themselves are devoured and nothing is given back to them. Um... Morgul Hamster, I don't remember. So, her reference to the fact that the temple prostitutes are usually barren after a few seasons suggests that they are not barren from day one, and that temple prostitutes becoming pregnant and giving birth happens. I. That seems to be something that's accepted by her. What comes of the babies thus born? We're not told that Orwal says that the seed of men might have gone to make hardy boys and fruitful girls and didn't suggests to me pretty clearly that whatever does happen to babies conceived in the temple, they're not out there being hardy boys and fruitful girls, right? I don't know what it means. Are they killed at birth? Are they sold into slavery? I don't know. Um, uh, 
Cal Elros, there was a connection between slaves and the temple girls, but I think it went the other way. I think that some of the daughters of the slaves who were always having children in the king's house, bastards and such, were given to the temple, like became temple girls. But I don't think it went the other way, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, Katriana, I wonder that too. I think it's possible that um, either birth complications left them barren after a while, or if they're doing abortions or something that leaves them barren. Yes, I, I don't know exactly. This is one of those things, and I love how Lewis handles this. He doesn't get into the details about this, right? He doesn't tell us exactly what's happening with the question of the conception of the, the you know, of, of the conception of babies by the temple prostitutes. Um, but he, and, but he doesn't do it because Orwell, our narrator, like when she says something like, and usually barren after a few seasons, she's leaving it unsaid because it doesn't need to be said, right? I mean, everyone in her society is going to know, right? We don't know, but she would. Um, but, um, but yes, I would not be at all surprised if there were some um, uh, uh, drug. Um, I mean, this would have been before the um, uh, before the plant that caused spontaneous abortion was picked to extinction by the Romans. Um, so, what was it called again? I'm blanking on it. The name of the plant. Um, Silphium. Thank you, Liz. Yeah, Silphium. That was the one. Um, so is, 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 is that what Lewis is, has in mind here? Is he imagining that, like, they're giving them Silphium um, in order to spontaneously abort? Well, it's hardly spontaneous if you're taking a drug for it, is it? Um, but in any case, uh, in order to, to abort the babies, but that this process, when repeated multiple times, leads to barrenness? Um, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly again what he's uh, um, what he's implying there, um, but um, anyway, so but again that she is pointing to the whole business as an illustration of devouring of the unilateral devouring of things by the gods. Um, and I think it's important, as we were noticing, that she begins this whole passage with a, with a citation of the fox's skepticism, right? Because there's a flavor of the fox's skepticism that informs the whole thing, right? And that skepticism would absolutely connect to the skepticism that any of this did anything to cause fertility or rain or corn, right? Um, the fox totally didn't believe in any of that, and Orwell herself seems to still have some doubts. Um, let me therefore qualify. Well, no, let me add another layer, perhaps. I don't take back what I was just saying before about my reading of her um, 
sort of revulsion at the inside of the House of Ungit and her still looking around and saying, like, again, like, I know the gods, the gods, their issues, but, like, this is not getting it done. Like, this does not make sense to me. Even as one who's encountered the gods, this makes no sense to me. Right. Um, this still looks like a, a serious missing of the point. I think that element is still there. But I think I would go one step further. Um, uh, the, the further step I would go, I think that what, one of the things I believe that we're seeing here in this segment is Orawal's It's almost like a last last gasp of her accusation against the gods. This feels to me like a yeah, okay, but right like all right, so sure, I'm being pulled out onto precipices of truth and whatnot, right? Yeah, I'll grant you that. But okay, God of the mountain. What do you have to say about the House of Ungit? Okay? Surely, anyone looking at the House of Ungit would first say, this is appalling and disgusting. And then they would say, it's horrible. If the gods are right, and if the gods are benevolent, why do they let this go on? I mean, she's looking. Around and and what what she's seeing is devouring. This is not love. This is not blessing. Why, if the gods are true, and if the gods are good, even if their surgery is very painful, why is the religion of the gods so horrible? Um. I think there's still um, so I think there still is an element of so what do you have to say about that, oh God of the mountain to this it's again it's not the same as before she's not as angry as before, but she's still looking around and saying, look i still I can't even with this right um, last thing. And then we'll go for this week. Jack Rabbit, I want to go back to your observation, which is so good. Arnhem and the Queen are sitting next to each other. Arnhem is wearing the bird mask. Remember the bird mask that the old priest used to carry in on his chest, which made it look like a bird was emerging from his chest? Which is itself a reenactment of this moment of the um, the birth of the year when the priest wearing the bird mask fights his way out of the house of Ungit, which is shaped what's the shape of the house of Ungit? What does it look like? You remember? She's told us this, but it was only when she was looking down on it as she was going up the mountain. It was just a passing reference. Remember what it looks like? What does it look like? It looks like an egg. Yeah, shaped like it's 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 
kind of oblong. It's shaped like an egg. Um, and he's got his bird mask on and he's fighting his way. So you see like level of like symbol of a symbol of a symbol, right? Um, overlaying each other in the sacred ritual here. Um, and um, there's Arnhem with his bird mask on. There's the queen sitting next to him, right? Him with his mask, her with her veil. Neither of them have faces, as Jackrabbit was saying, right? Um, and um, think about her own recent realizations about her own constructed identity. Her faceless, her veil was not just a void. To hide her face behind her veil, she found, was not just to be invisible. It was to present a mask. It was to create a whole symbolism of the queen. She not only constructed her own in her own internal identity of the queen, she in constructed a whole mythos of the queen in the kingdom and the region roundabout, right? The veiled queen becomes a thing different, other than her, pointing to something else, right? Just as Arnhem's mask is doing. But what has just happened? She has just felt that her whole soul was one tooth which was just pulled. That she is now the gap between the teeth. And that identity was the queen, the mask, the veiled queen. And so there she is, Jackrabbit, sitting next to Arnhem with his mask on. Notice even the reference to the fact of how sleepy Arnim is, and no wonder. He had a long night, right? Um, he was in his mask, nodding with weariness. She's not paying attention to the mask. She's just thinking about her friend Arnim. And she's very aware of his humanity, of what he personally is feeling. What she is not doing is entering into the ritual. When he is sitting there, with that mask on, on that day. He is not Arnhem, her friend. He is a symbol of a symbol of a symbol, right? But she doesn't even see that. She is just chatting with her friend Arnhem, right? Um, and I think that's an important... Th so the likeness, I think, is important, but there's this whole new kind of dynamic to that which um, I think we wouldn't have seen before. Um, yeah, okay. Um, oh, that's fascinating, Ambrosius. 
She sees him nodding with weariness as she's seen him many times in her court late at night as they work, thinking about Bardia and Bardia's weariness and how she worked Bardia until he was so tired he could barely stay awake. And here's Arnhem being devoured in a similar way by his job, right? Um, it's a gentler devouring than what she's seeing when she's looking around at the temple prostitutes, but kind of in the same direction. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's in Arnhem's court now. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, she's in Ungit's court now, right? Um, this dark and stinky egg is um, Ungit's pillar room. Um, okay. I am not going to apologize for how few passages we get through. We're going to finish this. Um, go back, make sure before next time you reread this chapter. It's the, the second chapter of book two, um, which, if I'm remembering correctly, begins with the sequence in Ungit's house and then through the dream that she has at the end of the chapter. Um, we're gonna we're gonna work we're gonna continue working through her thoughts about Ungit and the house of Ungit and the gods, and then we're gonna move into um her actions and then her visions and dreams. So um all right. That's um that's what's gonna happen. I should be here next week, next two weeks, I believe. Um so um who knows? Maybe within the next fortnight, we'll finish chapter two. All right. Thanks very much, everybody. I will see you guys next week. Bye now.